0: Station four, Jesus meets his mother. Would you turn to John chapter 19 with me? If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. It'll be on the screen in a moment. It will be in uh, the Bible in front of you, or it'll be on your phone if you get got the app. John chapter 19, we're going to skip ahead to the end of the story. It's in verse 25. We'll be there in just a minute. But I want to tell you that I'm cheating when we're turning to John chapter 19. Because in the traditional stations of the cross... Jesus meets his mother on the road. Now, this is not in our Bibles, okay? But what is in our Bibles, and what we're just about to read in a moment, is that Mary and a few other folks, the mother of Jesus, was at the foot of the cross of Jesus, okay? So we're at station four, Jesus meets his mother, and we've got to use some biblical imagination, and here's what I mean. If we assume that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is at the foot of the cross when he's crucified, okay? how many mothers are in the house? Yes? Do you think that she just happened to be walking in or out of the city and looked up and said, Jesus, what are you doing on that cross? You think she's surprised and she just happened upon Jesus at the cross? No, it's tradition that it's station four that Jesus meets his mother along the road because if we know that she was at the foot of the cross, wouldn't it make sense that she was with him every step of the way leading up to the cross? If you got a mama that wants to be in your life and she came to every little piano recital and soccer game, do you think that Mary, the mother of Jesus, showed up at his condemnation? Do you think that she was probably even knocking on the door of the Last Supper a few days before and saying, hey, hey, y'all need anything? Do you think that she was with her son when Pilate washed his hands and condemned him? When the crowd said, we have no king but Caesar? Do you think that she followed him when they fitted him for that cross that was meant for Barabbas? Do you think that she was watching in horror? And do you think that she followed him each painful and slow and bloody step from the place of condemnation? And even when she sees him stumble and fall, do you think that she was there every step of the way? I do. And so do the people that have put together the stations of the cross. And when they say Jesus meets his mother, they're imagining that after Jesus stumbles and falls under the weight of the cross, which is what we looked at last week, can you imagine Jesus in pain and probably in this grave and dreadful realization that this is really happening? Do you imagine that he begins to scan the crowd and looking for a friendly face? Do you imagine that he's looking for Peter who said, is the rock that Jesus is going to build the church on and the rock is nowhere to be found? Do you imagine that he's scanning for Thomas and Philip and Bartholomew and all these others? Do you imagine that he's scanning for the women who supported him out of his ministry? Do you imagine he's scanning the crowd and saying, I just fell, is this really happening? And do you imagine that he's looking for a familiar face and station four imagines biblically and prayerfully that he meets the gaze of his mother. And he looks into her eyes. And surely, if she was there when he was stumbling, what he saw when he looked into her eyes was the deepest, darkest mingling of sorrow and helplessness. If you go back and look at the passion of the Christ Mel Gibson's movie that you kind of only need to see a couple times and it kind of sticks with you. Maybe you remember the scene in which Jesus stumbles and falls on the road. Mel Gibson actually, because he was a Catholic, strategically worked in all the stations of the cross. Now don't quote me on that, but I know he got most of them. And one of the stations after Jesus falls and the cross hits the ground and he, his body, because half the movie is in slow motion, he's slow mowing to the ground. Go back and watch it. Half of it is in slow motion. And he's falling to the cross. You move immediately to station four and his mother is there. And she's looking with fright and helplessness and sorrow. And she looks at Jesus and all of a sudden she's flooded with memories of Jesus falling as a child. And she goes back to this place in her mind and her heart when she sees the son that she is trying to understand. Her son that she raised and held and loved, but is supposed to be the Savior of the world and he's falling. And she meets his gaze and she's flooded with all these scenes of him falling and skinning his knee. And in her memories, you know what she was able to do? Run to him. And scoop him up. And hold the Savior of the world close to her and say, it's going to be okay. And when Jesus takes the journey to the place of the skull, she cannot run this time. She cannot scoop him up this time. She cannot meet him. And Isaac, that was so awesome. I don't know where y'all came up with that. But when the students are putting together the image that we will pray through in station four, and they have the two hands that are close but not touching I believe that articulates the helplessness that Shirley Mary must have felt. Because for 33 years she had been there with Jesus. And now she cannot be there for Him in the way she wants to be. And haven't we all been there? Haven't we all, as a parent, looked on at our child and we can't fix it? Haven't we been there as a friend who looks on at a person that is mired in addiction or self-destruction or some hang-up they can't leave and we feel helpless? Haven't we as a son and a daughter looked on at our parents and we see them and age and illness start to deteriorate and haven't we looked and felt helpless? I love this Station of the Cross from an artist in Seattle. She painted all of these on wood. And this is station four. And it's Jesus close to His mother. And they're meeting each other here. And you just see this immense sorrow. And this resolution that yes, this is really happening. Where sorrow and love meet. And Mary, I can't imagine what she's feeling, the helplessness of seeing her son take this long and brutal journey to the cross. Can we imagine what that feels like? Haven't we all been there? Well, in this story, beautifully captured here, I believe there's some reminders for us when we face suffering. When we look like this, when we look like We cannot see the way forward. When we look like there's nothing that can be done, I believe there are some reminders for us as we meet Jesus' mother and Jesus along the road. So you'll see on your screen three focus statements we're going to run through briefly and return to John chapter 19. And it reminds us what the Bible has reminded us of from Genesis to Revelation. Revelation. In this story of a mother and son's suffering, tonight we're reminded in just a moment that Jesus is intimately acquainted with suffering. Secondly, that Jesus knows what you need when you need it. And let me just also add, Jesus gives you what you need when you need it. And third, we're going to see that Jesus is at work even though you don't see it or understand it. I wish I could give you the easy answers. I wish I could have helped Mary. I wished Mary could have helped Jesus. But she didn't understand what was really happening behind the scenes. But what she did know in those moments is that Jesus was intimately acquainted with suffering. Would you look with me in John chapter 19? We're going to read verses 25 to 27. This disciple took her into his home. Now we just jumped to the end of the story. Like I said earlier, this is not Jesus meeting Mary on the road. This is Jesus meeting Mary and the beloved disciple and a few other women at the foot of the cross. But what we see first is that Jesus is intimately acquainted with suffering. And if you look in verse 25, you have these people who have made the journey out to the cross. Let's assume and imagine that Jesus had locked eyes with his mother and Jesus had saw in her the sorrow and helplessness that we can feel. And let's assume now that they've made it all the way and the sinking feeling is sunk in that says, yeah, Jesus is going to die. And so you have these people that John names at the cross. Each of the gospels named people that were there. Now there are some really interesting exclusions and that would be all the men that were following Jesus and said, I'm going to follow you to death through his part, buddy. And so what's happening here is probably all of Jesus' male disciples have fled because they're fearing arrest. Wouldn't that make sense? Do y'all remember in the story when Peter denies Jesus, when they started to try to uh, uh, get him in league with Jesus? I don't know him. Surely they've fled. They had heard and seen crucifixions before and they don't just go after the leader, they want to go after all the cronies. So what happens then is you see these women and the beloved disciple at the foot of the cross. And so they are probably there because they didn't think women were much of a threat. They were there because they didn't think that they would take up arms. In fact, if you're paying attention to some of the smaller stories in the news of Syria and these places in Muslim countries that are ripped to shreds and war-torn or Mosul or things like this, the women can, to some degree, move freely because they still need to feed and care for the home, and they can be accompanied, but the men really have to be low-key because they may be insurgents or fighters or on this side or that side, and something similar is happening in this same area 2,000 years before. The women are there because they're not a threat, but the men have scattered. So what about the beloved disciple? Well, he maybe was pretty young, couldn't grow a nice beard, and if it was John that wrote this gospel, we know that John, when he wrote John, First John, Second, Third, and Revelation, he was pretty old. So maybe he was so young that he would look like that kid that puts on his daddy's army's cl- army clothes and he's just kind of walking around. Or I imagine for me, like the eighth grader in homecoming that puts on that suit that his mom bought at J.C. Penney, and it's like super billowy, and It like comes down to right here, and he looks like he was in a '90s hip hop soul group. Maybe he was so young. But here's what the point I want to make. What are these people thinking? If Jesus is the Son of God, if Jesus is who He says He is, if Jesus says, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father, what do we make of this? What do we make of the father that was intimately close to the son? And the false narrative begins to creep into their heads. And I believe it goes something like this. God is distant from your situation. And he is unmoved by your pain. They would have heard Jesus say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they say, how can this possibly be the victory of the kingdom of God when right now the darkness is winning? How can he be the place where heaven and earth meets, the temple becoming redundant? Jesus says, I'm greater than the temple when this just looks like hell on earth. How can Jesus be the light and savior when he's giving up his life? Do you think that these people cried out to God at the foot of the cross, Father, save Jesus? Do you think that they prayed that? I do. Wouldn't you? And don't we, when we face suffering, God, heal, God, move, God, please? And this is where we live as Christians. As people who stare suffering square in the face and cry out to God to do something about it. And in this church, I'll said it before, I'll say it again. We always pray, believing that God can, and we ask and beg and cry and scream that He will. Because until we know different, what more do we have? And so we meet these people at the foot of the cross and they're crying out to God. And Jesus, who had just said in the upper room, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And what they're doing is crying out to the Father. But what they don't realize is that the Father is leaving the Son on the cross because the Son is intimately suffering and knowing and feeling the weight of the world. He is suffering so that suffering may be undone. So they're praying and they're crying out, but they don't realize that this is part of it, that he does have to suffer. And so the true narrative that we have to remind ourselves of when we feel like God is not listening, when we feel like God is not lifting a finger, when we're like the psalmists that say, wake up, God. We gotta remember that God is involved in your situation. And he is moved to compassion. And the same Jesus that was on the cross was Jesus who wept when Lazarus died. Jesus who weeps with you at the fallout of this broken world. At the fallout of sin distorting every nook and cranny of our world. He weeps and he came to do battle against it. So you see when he meets the sick, he's moved to compassion. And you see when he meets the crowds, if you've been reading in Lent, Recently, he said, he sees the crowd and they're like a sheep without a shepherd and he's moved to compassion to feed them, to help them. This is what God is like. He enters into the mess. He looks it squarely on the face. He doesn't remove himself. He goes straight down to the depths. And sometimes we pray because we want the battle to be won, but we've got to understand that God is always about winning the war. And what it looked like on the cross to these people crying out in pain is they're not thinking this passage that Isaiah had said centuries earlier, and that is about Jesus in Isaiah 53, verses 1-5 to that's on the screen. What they're not thinking is that God would look like this. Who's believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Basically, what does it look like when God is at work powerfully to win the war? He grew up before Him like a tender shoot cared for by a mother who would run to Him but can't run to Him anymore, right? Back in Isaiah 53. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him. Nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. He was a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Let me just pause here. When you are suffering and familiar with pain, Go search every world religion to find gods that are unmoved and uncaring and aloof and come to Jesus and see one who is familiar and intimately acquainted and who can cry with you and actually do something about it. But sometimes it looks like pain. He was like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely, verse 4, he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Pause. Do you think this is what's happening by the party in Jesus' mother who wants to pull him down off the cross or call legions of angels to save him? Do they not consider him despised and rejected? Are they not sinking into the false narrative that God is nowhere to be found and is not at work in this? Yes. But he was pierced for our transgressions, verse 5. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. You see, the hard thing for us Americans is that often healing comes through wounds. The hard thing for us Americans is we look at our wounds and we say, God, how are you involved? And I don't believe that God is involved in the things that we should more attribute to Satan and the enemy. I don't believe that God gives people cancer and relishes in it when they suffer and die. I just want to say that as baldly as we can, which is why we are praying against it. I believe that God can use it and redeem it any more than He redeems the terrible choices that we make to bend us back to a kingdom alternative. But Romans eight twenty eight, when it's talking about, I know that in Christ, all those things work together for good for those who love Him. Now, did He cause all those? I'm not sure. But I don't want to blame God for things that it looked like Jesus was undoing when He was on earth. So how is he involved? Well, I know that when we are wounded, he is in the business of healing. And if he doesn't heal now, we look past the cross to the resurrection and know that he will. He will. Maybe not now, but he will. Look at this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer before we move on and hit the last two points in our last two verses. In an incomprehensible reversal of all righteous and pious thinking, God declares himself guilty to the world and thereby extinguishes the guilt, that should say guilt, of the world. God himself takes the humiliating path of reconciliation and thereby sets the world free. God wants to be guilty of our guilt. And takes upon himself the punishment and suffering that this guilt brought to us. He goes on to say God stands in for godlessness, love stands in for hate, the Holy One for the sinner. Now there is no longer any godlessness, any hate, any sin that God has not taken upon himself, suffered and atoned for. Now there is no more reality and no more world that is not reconciled with God and in peace. That is what God did in his beloved son, Jesus Christ. When they considered him to be suffered and stricken, What he was doing was in the deeper level to win the war, and what he was doing was giving us what humanity could not do for themselves, which is the second piece. Jesus gives us what you need when you need it. Jesus gives us what you need when you need it. Look with me back in John chapter 19. I just lost my place. In John chapter 19, as this crowd is looking on. It says, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. Now, first of all, you need to know this. Jesus is not some, uh, um, let's say, rude individual that's saying, woman. In this time, uh, woman is his term of respect. In our time, I would be sleeping on the couch. Woman, where my coffee at? Woman, here is your son. What Jesus is doing is realizing that she, Mary, is in need. Often what you'd see if you were walking past criminals being crucified is they're giving their last will and testament because it's dawned on them, oh yeah, death is coming. And so rather than getting down and writing it out, right, because their hands are nailed to the cross, what they do is they make these pronouncements And the hours that it would take to die of suffocation and blood and fluid filling in their lungs. And so they would use their words strategically to make these formal pronouncements. And so we know in this church what faced a widow in Jesus' day. We know that she's not only seeing this pain and this helplessness, now if she allows herself to think of the next step, she's wondering where she's going to live that night. Because she's probably been following Jesus. She's probably been supporting Him. She's probably been with the family members who are not following Jesus but are still kind of on the outskirts wondering. And she's been moving and now Jesus has been divested of everything he's ever had. He, his, his garment is ripped. His garment is, um, is, is uh, gambled away. He doesn't have a 401k to drain. He doesn't have a house to bequeath to someone. So all that's left is this mother who is facing grief, who's facing uh, an uncertain financial future because she can't go get a job at McDonald's. And she's also facing a world that is hostile to widows and women and leaves them forgotten. And so what he does is he gives Mary what she needs. Even though if you ask Mary, hear me, Mary, what do you need at this moment on a Friday afternoon? She says, I need my son off the cross. But what Jesus does is he gives her something as basic as security in a family. And what he does give her is something as big as this is what it looks like when God's kingdom comes and the king is enthroned. When Jesus taught us to pray for what he needs in the Lord's Prayer that we prayed earlier, he told us to pray for things as basic as daily bread. Not bread for tomorrow, not bread for Friday, not bread for Sunday, bread for today. He taught us to have something as basic as to get us through like the dewdrops along the path when we're hiking or the small sips of water, but he also asked us to pray for something as big as the streams and the lakes that we can one day wash in when we pray for the kingdom to come in fullness. He gives us things as basic as bread and as big as the kingdom come, and Mary needed. Something as basic as a place to live and that's what he gives. And so what he does is he finds the beloved disciple, right? That's probably John. And he says, hey, now this is your mother. And what he did was he put this family together and from that time on the disciple took her into his home. The problem is when Jesus gives us what we need, the first problem is we think we know better than what we need. This is the big problem. Mary thought there was a laundry list of things she needed in that moment more than what Jesus was giving her. The other problem with what we need is when we need it. But haven't you and I'm serious now I'm really trusting God here haven't you had a moment in the last year when you looked around and scratched your head and said um yo I don't know what we're going to do here and hasn't there been just enough something right when you need it? Hasn't there been something? I'm serious think about it. Do this thought experiment. And when you hold on to that, when you remember that check, that text, that person that came alongside you, that breath of fresh air, that good news, that relief, that healing, hold on to it, remember it, say thank you God for it, and then keep your eyes open for when it happens again. Because the thing about the Christian life or any life is that our choices to pay attention to this or to do that become our habits, and our habits become our character. And the more we stay awake to God who never runs out of what we need, giving us what we need, the more we begin to build a kind of life over time that begins to see it day in, day out. And they thank God for the basic things like daily bread. And they even have the, have the will and the, the nerve to ask for the huge things because they've had enough in the past of the little that they can trust God for the big. I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to pray in these moments of suffering. Start in the thank you, God, and would you, God. I hope you're not sick of praying that way in this church. This is what we're teaching our kids. This is what we're teaching our students. This is what we do as adults. If you don't know how to pray, start with thank you, God, for. And please, I hope you can fill in the blank or two once in a while. But the more you begin to put on that, choices become your habits and habits become your character. And then you can be the kind of person that can even look through the suffering and say, you know what, he's given me what I've needed before and he's never going to run out of what I need. The third thing we see, well, I'll read this quote. We're kinda, I'm kind of ready to be done in a minute, but I want to read this quote too from Brother Lawrence. When I think about God giving us what we need when we need it. Brother Lawrence was a monk several hundred years ago. He wrote a beautiful little book that kind of changed my life. It's called The Practice of the Presence of Christ. And it's a whole book about staying awake when you're washing dishes. This dude was a dishwasher. It's all about staying awake to that God is with you, with you right now here. Are you awake? This is what he said. We have a God who is infinitely gracious and knows all our wants. Brother Lawrence took it there. I said needs. He said wants. But he will come in his own time and when you least expect it. Hope in him more than ever. Thank him with me for the favors he does you. Particularly, hear this, for the fortitude and patience which he gives you in your afflictions. It is a plain mark of the care he takes of you. Comfort yourself then with him and give thanks for all. The third reminder in this story of suffering of a mother and son is that Jesus is at work even though you don't see it or understand it. You remember in John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. Do you remember who was there with Jesus who kind of popped back into the kitchen? I imagine Jesus like sitting up on the table and it's like day three of the wedding. It was like a full tilt party and Jesus was probably just catching his breath and like I imagine him like sitting up on the kitchen and then I I just see Mary, the mother of Jesus, throwing open the door and saying, we've got a big, big problem. The dude that threw this wedding has made a big party foul and he's totally out of booze. (laughs) And Jesus is probably like kicking his feet and he's like, you know, I just kind of healed a bunch of people. And you talking to me about booze? But okay. What Jesus says is my hour has not yet come. Mary didn't understand that his time to be revealed as who he is had not yet come. Now, so Mary goes, well, just do whatever he says. And what he did was he took these 30-gallon tubs of Jewish ceremonial cleansing water that was used for religion and purity and all the kinds of barriers that were between he and God, us and God, and he turned the purifying water, 30 gallons of it times however many, and he turned it into the finest wine that signified the kingdom of God is here and it's a party. And it, John said it's the first sign. And then if you read the Gospel of John through to its end, we don't see Mary again until later on. But that was the first sign. And he said, my hour had not yet come. And then there came the second sign, third sign, fourth sign, fifth sign, sixth sign. And if you're like me or you've been around, you kind of say like, oh, but seven, right? Isn't seven the number of completion? I believe that John is making the point in his gospel, the seventh sign is Jesus on the cross. And Mary didn't understand then, and I don't think Mary understood fully then at the cross, but I believe that all of that suffering began to snap into focus, and you know when I think she understood? Sunday morning. Friday afternoon, it looked like the darkness was winning. Friday afternoon, he looks stricken by God. Sunday afternoon, she knows that the light has won. Sunday afternoon, she knows that God has not stricken him, he's vindicated him. And forever he is raised, forever he's alive. And those of us who he said, come to me and you'll find life. Those of us who are united to Christ in this life will be united to him in the life to come. And not even death can separate us because of Sunday morning. So can we find in our suffering those places where right now we don't see him working like Mary did at the cross on Friday? And can we look through the cross and to the cross and say that even when it doesn't look like it, God is at work going to do battle against the forces of sin, shame, darkness and Satan. Can we look to the cross and say, this doesn't look like at all how I imagined it, but God is at work. And I may only realize it on Sunday, whatever your Sunday is, whatever it is a year from now or a month from now or 10 years from now, may you look back and see that in those wounds you found your healing. Will you look back on a Sunday that God will give you, Lord willing someday, that you will see that this cross makes sense in the light of resurrection? Can you see your cross in the light of the resurrection that is to come, if you haven't seen it yet? We have to look to the cross and see that this is what it looks like. Our God is a sin-bearing God. He's a shame-bearing God. And if you want to know what God looks like, you look to Jesus. And if you want to know even the clearest picture, the ultimate of what Jesus looks like, you look to the cross. Because Paul, that was enough for him. He resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But here's the problem is sometimes I get overwhelmed with the crucifixion of our life. Sometimes I get overwhelmed like I've been in the last month where it seems like we as a community and those that we're connected to are just on death's door. Sometimes I get overwhelmed. Sometimes I get overwhelmed when I get the news this week of a child that was born with these uh, genetic abnormalities and they're facing down a long and difficult road. And sometimes I think, you know, look at this child that is just caught in the crosshairs of this wicked world. Sometimes I look at the news and I see kids that are starving. Sometimes I think about the orphans that really are full of joy and peace, but they really don't know that they're caught in the middle too. And in those moments, I pray like Jesus' mother, and I try to imagine meeting his gaze. Earlier, I said, What do you think Jesus saw when he looked at Mary's eyes? And I said, He saw this deep mingling of sorrow and helplessness. But now I want to ask you the question What do you think that Mary saw if she locked eyes with Jesus? And when I'm overwhelmed with crucifixion and suffering, Um, I heard another pastor talk about this sometime, and so I go to a place in my head of my spiritual, prayerful imagination, and I I just ask the Spirit to just, I don't know if I need answers, I just need some relief from the tension when I just face death, and, and I feel for these people that love you and are crying out to you. What do we do? Especially, what do we do with these kids in the world that are abused and dying and suffering? And I go to this place where I try to meet Jesus' gaze and I imagine him sitting under this large and beautiful tree in the summer. And I imagine this field and I imagine like I read, if you did in the Lent reading, when he said, let these kids come to me. And I put myself in this place and it's, you know, I'm not saying, hey, go do this. I'm just telling you. And I try to meet Jesus' gaze. I try to think, what did Mary see when she looked at Jesus? And I see Jesus with kids crawling all over him. And I see him with kids that could never walk running and having a great time. And I see these kids that are laughing and smiling. And I see these kids that are beautiful and they're just loving being with Jesus. And Jesus is loving being with them. And they're not afraid and they're not upset and they're not worried and they're not anxious. And I just try to meet Jesus' gaze. And I just think that I see this trust in him. I see these eyes that look to me, and I see, I I promise I'm gonna make it up to them. And I just believe that we can look to the cross and we can meet Jesus' gaze. And we can see that God is going to make it up to us. If we are in Christ, if we keep our eyes set on His gaze, if we just look to Him, we would see that He really does make all things new. Father, You are love, You are good. And uh, I'm a little bit... uh, (laughs) unprepared for this it made better sense when i wrote it down in my conclusion not when i talk about it so (laughs) thank you for meeting with us and thank you for gifting us with a biblical imagination to stare suffering in the face and still move on to hope because you showed us what it looked like when love wins and sometimes it looks like it wins even in the darkest pain and that's while we keep looking at the cross, because we know that people in this room are suffering and they don't know the way forward. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would give them what they need, that you would turn their eyes to Jesus, that you would uh, just console them, that you would gift them with your peace, and that Lord, in those places of anxiety and fear, I ask that you would meet them with hope and rest even if it's not fixed. If that's all they need right now, Lord, I pray that You would gift them with it. We thank You for the victory of the cross, that forever You are exalted and every knee will bow and tongue confess someday. So Lord, until that day, may we live as faithful followers of you, even in the midst of suffering, trusting that you're at work and remembering and knowing that you're good, even if the world gives us evidence to the contrary, Will we lean into you and find love and peace and healing at the foot of the cross. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, our King, who suffered and died. Amen. May God bless you with a restless discomfort about easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships, so that you may seek truth boldly and love deep within your heart. May God bless you with holy anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people, so that you may tirelessly work for justice, freedom, and peace among all people, May God bless you with the gift of tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation, or the loss of all that they cherish, so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and transform their pain into joy. May God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you really can make a difference in this world, so that you are able, with God's grace, to do what others claim cannot be done. May you go in peace.